If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks, welcome. Welcome to the program. It is Thursday. This is TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. we got a power, power pack show for you today. We're going to be uh, talking to a number of guests from around the world about a love... <clears throat> pardon me a lot of salient issues that are affecting the planet right now uh, we'll do our best to bring you into the region such as asia the middle east north america and europe we're going to hit all of these points over the next two hours we welcome you onto the stage in the first hour top middle east analyst veteran journalist Layla Hatoum is going to join us in the first hour to talk about something that the mainstream media doesn't want to talk too much about that is three iranian missile strikes three you probably only heard that there was Iranian missile strikes. We didn't hear there was three. There was, yes, one in Iraqi Kurdistan. Yes, there was one in Pakistan. And there was another one, which they definitely don't want to talk about, which hit Idlib in Syria. That is Al-Qaeda and ISIS stronghold backed by the West, uh, occupied in north of Syria. And they hit major targets there. That's a very embarrassing one. We'll talk about all of these, the ramifications of them. Also, what's going on geopolitically here. The situation with Pakistan is extremely interesting. And it's going to have heavy bearing on things just more broadly, uh, not just in Central Asia, but among the Islamic world politically. We'll talk about all that, how it relates to Gaza how it relates to Yemen. We'll talk about all that in the first hour. And also be joined by Basil Valentine for updates on Gaza, the situation there. Uh, it's been as deadly as ever. Israel has not let up on their attacks, even though for all intents and purposes, I, I repeat, for all intents and purposes, they've been indicted and they are guilty as charged of genocide. Okay, Indicted in the world court of public opinion. And if I have a crystal ball and I'm going to say that they will eventually be indicted for genocide at the ICJ, well, that will get me community noted as it did last night. And some people even say that's an anti-Semitic statement to, to, to determine Israel's guilt in advance of an official verdict. No, they're guilty. Everybody knows it. The court is just a formality. Whatever verdict the court returns, whenever they return it, in months or years, doesn't matter. Everybody knows what they've seen. Everybody knows what's happened. That's the reality of it, folks. Uh, and we'll also be joined by Christian James, our research assistant for the show. He's been watching the World Economic Forum's confab in davos and uh they they've kind of gone nuclear and that's what we're going to talk about we'll talk about some of the issues christians uh going to report re davos this year and there's a lot of talk about war and it seems like the great and the good the billionaire class are pushing uh, a world war three agenda at davos who knew it was even possible that these people were capable of such things honestly you couldn't see that coming could you anyway we'll talk to christian second hour uh, on that and there's a number of stories we could comment on obviously we got the new hampshire race coming up that's going to be exciting we'll be talking a lot about that tomorrow uh and also probably the post-mortem on monday as well and so Super Tuesday is coming up at some point very soon. We'll be discussing that. Nikki Haley, Trump, is DeSantis going to hang in there? 
what's happening on the Democratic side. All of that's up for grabs. We got some disturbing statements uh, from the UK. Grant Shapps, who is this week's defense minister, they seem to rotate that position of defense minister quite often. So it's always good to get, they've had people whose background was a fireplace salesman, uh, you know, traveling salesman. They've had those people serve for a while. Gavin Williamson is defense minister. You can just throw anybody in there and then they go out and make speeches about defense and geopolitics. And they're supposed to, well, the public's supposed to think they know what they're talking about. Grant Shapps is one of these latest bureaucrats thrust into an important position uh, as the world careens towards World War III. All you need is somebody like this who really has no experience, doesn't know what he's talking about, is basically saying that the West needs to prepare for war with Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. So the, the West, and when we say the West, be very clear. When we say the West, we mean the United States and Britain. That's what the West means, because those are the only people that are gagging for a multi-front war, and nobody else is particularly interested. Canada is going to go along for the ride, so that's kind of a non-entity. Um, Australia, New Zealand, they're also in the West, even though they're in the East. They're just going to go along for the ride and do what they're told. Uh, and the other NATO countries... They won't have any choice. The United States says, we're going to drag you into a war like they did with Ukraine. And what did the European NATO members do? What did they do? They just said, well, yeah, ooh, yes. Mm, uh, at the beginning, they're, uh, mm, mm. and after a while, the whip was cracked. And they're like, yes, sir, yes, sir. Three bags full, sir. How much does Zelensky need? We're broke, but how much do you need Zelensky? See, that's the way it goes. That's the relationship. Grant Shapps wants Western nations to increase their military spending ahead of a possible conflict. So to remilitarize the world, as if it's not bad enough already, the British defense minister has predicted a global conflict. He says it's a fait accompli. It's going to happen. Are we living in George Orwell's 1984? It seems like it. Shaps has also called on British allies to increase their military spending. Cha-ching, cha-ching, you know what that means? That's good for business. Good for the dividends of people who hold shares in BAE Systems, Raytheon, General Dynamics, General Electric, Lockheed Martin, Boeing. That's what it's good for. Get that spending up. Get that spend. Get up to 2%. No, 3% of GDP. Get some extra credit for that NATO assignment. 3%. Why not? 3%. We're broke anyway, so hey, what's what's the difference? It's just a bit of deficit spending. Might cause some inflation. No big deal. For Joe and Jane, average on the street just means you're going to pay more for that loaf of bread. You might not be able to feed your family properly uh, for the next year or two. No big deal. In his first speech as defense minister on Monday, wow, new defense chief. So exciting. Shops Describe the UK as the leading global military power, as a leading global, I thought it was the, no, a leading global military power. So if, if Britain is a leading global military power, how come they can't deploy their aircraft carrier because they don't have enough staff because they're down on recruitment? They literally can't man the ship and forget about the fact there's no planes on the deck. Why is that? How many working fighter craft does Britain have? at any given moment. In other words, what can be deployed for an actual mission? 
at any given moment. What do we have? Well, forget about the expeditionary forces on the aircraft carrier. That's not happening. Dry dock. What about locally? Well, I suppose they could fly locally. How many could they scramble right now today? Six, eight, 10, maybe 20. Let's just say 30. Are you a global military power with a potential 30 aircraft combat ready that can go right now today? Flick the switch. No, you're not. These people are in la la land. Uh, they're still pumping up and hyping up the war. Now they want to declare war against Yemen. You know, the UK is not going to do much there. They're just riding shotgun with the US. And the US isn't going to do much either. They tried to wipe out answer Allah, aka the Houthis, with Saudi Arabia over the last eight years, and they failed. Not only did they fail, uh, the so-called Houthis, as the West like to call them, answer Allah, got uh, probably 5x, 10x stronger, more capable, better organized than they were before Saudi, the U.S., and Britain declared war in Yemen in March of 2015. So that didn't work out too well, did it? So why don't we just double down on that policy that doesn't work? That's uh, always a good move. Yep, okay. So let's also talk about this statement. You're going to be triggered by this. If you're triggered by this statement, uh, my advice to you is stick to uh, calling football games. Based Lavrov is back. Sergey Lavrov is one of the most based people in global politics. So he's really pushed the boat out here and triggered a lot of people. He's saying the Holocaust does not give Israel impunity, says Sergey Lavrov, Russian foreign minister. Ouch, this is going to hurt. The Soviet people were also subject to a Nazi genocide, reminds uh, Lavrov to the world. But Russia doesn't have carte blanche in the global arena even though they suffered their own genocide, says Lavrov. Israel should not think that suffering of the Jews during World War II gives it free reign in foreign policy, particularly when it comes to the hostilities in Gaza, says Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, speaking to a press conference in Moscow, talking about diplomacy on Thursday. He also reiterated his support for the creation of a Palestinian state. What has Lavrov said? Israelis can't, he said, cannot now do anything they want just because they suffered during World War II, says Lavrov. Yes, there was a Holocaust. It was a terrible crime. But there was also a genocide of peoples in the Soviet Union. He's talking about Germany's rampage eastward. How many people did Soviet Union lose in World War II? Anyone's guesstimation? somewhere circa 25 million but you won't hear about that in any of the western commentary it's as almost if it didn't exist in fact if you read the u.s history books they say the united states won world war ii and they defeated the nazis and that's about it you might see a footnote about the soviet union the red army who actually uh inflicted i don't know 70 percent of the casualties of nazis the Nazi war machine, something like that, 70%. So is it seven out of 10 Nazis? So I would say maybe Russia defeated the Nazis in World War II. Is that a controversial thing to say? Maybe, but not as controversial as what Lavrov has said. Base Lavrov, the Holocaust does not give Israel impunity. Apologies if anybody is triggered by that. I'm merely reading the words of the Russian foreign minister 
who by all accounts is extremely based. Let's take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back. We're going to go deep into Middle Eastern politics with veteran journalist Leila Hatoum on the other side. So stay right there. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rhymes. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold? Or COVID. Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. Take us back in time. And who was Mike Flynn? He was the national security advisor to the president. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming president of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. At this moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism, but the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com. Potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at his stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. Reaching residential areas by... 
and your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. ProtectPressFreedom.org. It sounds pretty good. It's it sounds like, real, it's dude. It's not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're live and direct for the next two hours. This is still our number one, this live broadcast. Thank you guys for joining us and a big hello to our community in the TNT chat room. We had 135 at our high water mark in the chat room yesterday. Good to see those numbers climbing. Love what you guys do in there. Keep up the great work. And that's where you want to be during the show. It's the red bubble, the red pill in the lower right-hand corner of your screen to go to tntradio.live. Just click on that. Stay logged in. It'll keep you in the session for future shows. So that's where you want to be during this broadcast. Now, we're going to pivot right now to the Middle East. And as I said uh, during the opening segment, uh, there was some coverage about Iranian missile strikes in the Western mainstream media. But they didn't talk about all of the strikes. And they didn't talk much about what really may have happened. We're going to delve into this and how this bears upon the situation right now uh, in Palestine and also with regards to the U.S. and their escalation against Yemen. Very pleased to welcome onto the program veteran journalist based in the Middle East from Beirut, Lebanon, Leila Hatoums, joining us on the live link right now. Hello, Leila. Thank you very much for coming on TNT this week. Hello. Always nice to be on your show, by the way. No, it's great to have you. Layla, this is absolutely, there's so many things that we need to unpack here, but I want to give you the floor just to outline what has happened and the significance of it. And then let's get into some of the burning questions about these Iranian missile strikes. I think this is a major event, and this is why it's being underplayed so much in the Western mainstream media, because quite frankly, they look like they're at pains to see how they're going to respond. Go ahead, Layla. Well, uh, over the past 48 hours, we've seen tension escalate, not only in uh, Yemen and elsewhere, but also between the two neighbors, Iran and Pakistan. And you have to remember, these two neighbors are uh, the biggest superpowers in the region, given the fact that one of them possesses nuclear weapons, and that's uh, basically Pakistan, and the other one is aspiring to have a nuclear bomb, and they're working for that, and that's Iran. So when you have one sovereign state attacking the territories, the sovereign territories of another state, that's a major no-no. Iran went over and attacked three sovereign states, targets in these three sovereign states. And they thought that Pakistan is going to be just like Iraq and Syria. You know that Syria had been facing civil war. It's divided over the past 12 years or so. Iraq is also divided by internal conflicts and the, separate, like, the attempts to separate Kurdistan from the rest of the Iraqi territories. So these governments are kind of weaker than a unified government at one point or another in Pakistan, a country that respects its sovereignty. And Iran miscalculated the Pakistani reaction. So when they attacked, for example, Jaysh al-Haq uh, in separatist Balochistan area at one point or another, claiming that these people have tried to attack or attacked sovereign Iranian territories in the past, this did not sit well with the Pakistanis. One, because they are a sovereign state. Two, at the end of the day, they were not notified of it. And they told the Iranians 
had they, you told us we would have been able to actually uh, tackle this issue. Yet you acted from behind our backs and you attacked our sovereign territories. This will not sit well. People were literally sitting on the edge of their chairs, waiting for that front to open at any point. And if that front escalates, that means basically a larger front, not only in the MENA region, but the MINASA region going all the way to Central Asia. And this is what the US wants. You have to understand the US has been trying to target Iran and move it to basically act and open more fronts. So basically it can give them an excuse to go and attack Iran at one point or another. So that's why we saw the Americans and the British who attacked the sovereignty of Yemen, supporting Pakistan in terms of defending its sovereignty against an attack by Iran. That's how it looked like, right? However, Pakistan um, uh, poked everybody's eye by acting responsibly in terms of being a superpower with, at one point or another, uh, a nuclear bomb. And they, I, I do consider the reaction as a self-restraint. They targeted Iranian uh, sovereign uh, territories, and they killed uh, nine uh, separatists over there. Iran says they, they are uh, foreigners. Uh, apparently, they are Pakistani separatists from Balochistan. However, you have to understand, this attack is a retaliation to the Iranian attack, and I don't believe that there's going to be any further escalation. Pakistan has shown self-restraint. Iran had apologized because we got information that the Foreign Affairs Minister of Iran picked up the phone, called the Foreign Affairs Minister of Pakistan, apologized for what happened. They are going to coordinate going forward. If anything happens, they will basically tackle it together rather than acting laterally without a green light from either or the, like either side of, uh, of the border. Um, so I do believe that whoever is capping on escalation on that front the maximum that we saw as a retaliation from Pakistan in the same manner as the as the attack itself by Iran on sovereign uh, by Pakistani uh, territories. And this is how I see it. There is no expansion of that front unless basically you see India, US or other um, uh, factors on the ground who support separatist agents in Balochistan or elsewhere trying to poke between the two neighbors to create uh, further tension going forward. This is interesting, Leila, because I know uh, traditionally Pakistan and Iran have good diplomatic relations. In fact, uh, Pakistan takes care of consulate duties for Iran in countries like the United States. So they, they have a lot of coordination politically. But isn't it true that Pakistan, you have uh, political factions and you have the military, which itself has its own sort of political weight to it and may also make arrangements with the ISI, for instance, that uh, because of the division in Pakistani politics, um, the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand is doing or doesn't get permission from the left hand. There's that going on. But what I think you said is really significant. Pakistan is a nuclear power and they didn't respond um, irrationally. So this is quite extraordinary. So it shows you that Iran has, I think, moved up a, a, a level in the region in terms of a normative power. They're kind of exercising a Monroe doctrine as the United States or Israel would do in their backyards. And Iran's is saying, we're going to take care of business uh, in our region. And this uh, it's quite a strong statement uh, from that point of view, Layla. What do you think about the geopolitics of it? Well, you have to understand, and this is just my view, like my analysis, it's not like something that I'm building on an official statement or anything else, but the way that Iran acted, I mean, there was the Kerman attack inside Iran that killed innocent civilians. And at one point or another, ISIS adopted it. A lot of countries in this region, including Iran, do believe that uh, Israel and the US stand behind ISIS. So instead of going and attacking Tel Aviv or attacking US 
basically interest in the region. We saw Iran attacking uh, what they claimed was the Mossad uh, base in, in Erbil in Kurdistan, Iraq. They attacked uh, radical groups in, in Syria and they attacked Jaysh al-Haq in Pakistan. So that's an attack on the sovereignty of three different states. That's one thing. And by that, they're no different or no better than the U.S. when it attacks the sovereignty of Syria, for example, at one point or other, claiming that, um, that they're targeting separatists or those people, uh, I mean, terrorists or those who are attacking the, the Americans. They are no different than the UK when the UK attacked Yemen. So, I mean, at the end of the day, they cannot go and basically lay the excuse that America is breaching international norms or whatever it is. It's because they are doing the same. Israel is doing the same as well. So there's no difference between them. In my eyes, in that particular incident, I have to say. However, I would have loved to see Iran coordinate with these countries, tell them beforehand what they're doing, and maybe they could have reached a solution where we wouldn't have seen this kind of tension, not only on the military uh, level, but also on the diplomatic level, because we saw at one point or other the calling of ambassadors, basically angry talks, statements, and even uh, people on the ground have lost uh, kind of respect, uh, newfound respect for Iran in Pakistan. I was in Pakistan last week. Um, if you remember, we had a, a, an interview as well when I was there and I was speaking to Pakistanis. And it's very interesting to hear them highly praise the role of Iran in supporting the resistance in Palestine because Palestine means a lot to Pakistanis. And I spoke to my newfound Pakistani friends in Pakistan today following what happened. And most of them actually showed disgruntled. They were disgruntled by what Iran did it's an attack on their sovereignty, so it's their pride. So they, it's, Iran kind of lost that kind of um, uh, support that it had garnered over the past four months in terms of its supporting Palestine by attacking Pakistani soil. Um, the way I see it, the moral doctrine, I mean, it only works with nations that have power on the ground. And at the same time, nobody can face them because they're big powers in the region or uh, in the area that they are found. So at the end of the day, so long that there's nobody can nobody can confront it or won't confront it because they fear a further escalation, the situation will persist. We will have preemptive strikes. You will have basically attack on sovereignty and so forth. So so basically, I I think the the subtext here, Leila, is um, that. The United States and Israel have already written the rule book of how they're going to conduct what they believe are their interests. And Iran is basically saying, well, we're going to use that rule book as well. And exactly. there's going to Everybody's be a using the same yeah, excuse go ahead. at the end of the day. No, no, I'm saying like everybody is using the same excuse at the end of the day. However, you have to understand like the situation uh, it's, it's different between Pakistan and Iran as opposed to what Iran, what Israel and the U.S. are doing to other nations. I do believe that when it comes to the Balochistan region, remember, it was a region that has been uh, a thorn in the side of Pakistan at one point or another in terms of the separate over there, not from now, not from 10 years, but from 2006, even before 2006. So this attack on Jaysh al-Haq in, in Balochistan did not sit well in terms of the national sovereign pride, but at the end of the day, it happened against people who basically Pakistan is also considered kind of um, a problem in terms of uh, separating from Pakistan. Same way goes for the Balushi side of uh, on the Iranian borders as well, inside Iranian territories. So at the end of the day, they managed to patch the hatchet, like uh, to, to bury the hatchet, as, as we say, because of this kind of situation. When it comes to other nations, the Israelis and the Americans, they did not only write that, they actually uh, invented new methods to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to uh, implement the Monroe Doctrine and even add to it. So they, they don't even care about uh, the rest of the world. Like they wouldn't attack a certain area that was, would, would, would not create that much problem. They would attack all of the areas that they think it's a problem for them. And that's different.
And, and you know, when you look at Pakistan, you know, they have, the, the, you know, the port of Guado, for instance, that's an important part of the Chinese Belt and Road uh, network uh, for the future. Lots of terrorist attacks hitting there, uh, plus the pipelines transversing that region. Obviously, this is in the interest of the United States that wants to thwart the Chinese Belt and Road project. So we'd be naive to think that the CIA uh, and British intelligence, Western intelligence are not, Israeli intelligence, are not involved in a lot of this terrorist activity to disrupt uh, Pakistan's relationship with China, for instance, uh, the Belt and Road future of Eurasia. That's definitely in the interests of the West. I think people understand that uh, in the region. It's still a touchy, it's still a touchy subject because like it or not, the United States is still the big boy on the block uh, and Pakistan has to deal with them uh, as do, and they have to deal with India as well. So this is not an easy thing. So I think this is very, as you said, Layla, very sensitive, very sensitive issue. And, um, but I think it, uh, Iran seems to have made a calculation uh, where they're, they're, they know they're going to sustain some, uh, diplomatic damage from this, um, but they've done it anyway. So that makes me wonder, Leila, um, the underlying motivation of Iran, they must have a bigger uh, picture that they're looking at going going forward. Otherwise, I can't see. They've been a very rational actor and very measured uh, over the years uh, with these sort of things. But they, they have demonstrated, Leila, this medium-range missile capability and the distance from Iran to Idlib is the same distance as Iran to Tel Aviv. Uh, and I don't think uh, Damascus was protesting too much about this strike. That's just me, Layla. I'm guessing that uh, if they didn't get formal permission, they weren't unhappy about it in Damascus. I think, do you agree? Um, as you said from the beginning, this is a very sensitive issue, and we would be fools not to basically uh, believe at one point or another that the American interests would lead to interference, some sort, some sort of an interference, be it through rogue agents on the ground or supporting certain separatists from actually carrying those attacks, including via terrorist groups. And this is why I said, basically, you might see countries that have a vested interest in this region, like India, like the US, the UK as well, at one point or another, China, Iran, and others basically um, carrying some sort of action over there. Uh, you have to understand as well that the main fight in that region is not between Pakistan and Iran as much as it's between China and the U.S. And they happen to be the main countries in the Belt and Road Initiative. Don't forget that also Iran recently in January 2024 joined the BRICS nations and that Iran had been uh, had found a new brokered peace with Saudi Arabia that's brokered by China itself. So the Chinese influence in the region diplomatically and economically has been increasing. So I wouldn't rule out um, a fingerprint, a US fingerprint in whatever is happening on the ground over there, be it the terrorist attacks or be it the incitement of separatists in Balochistan that led to this whole fighting. However, you have to understand one thing. When it comes to the Damascus and Iraq, I said it from the beginning, Pakistan is not Damascus or Iraq. Damascus is an ally of Iran. That's the first thing. And at one point or another, some people claim that there's a hegemony over what's happening, Iranian hegemony over what's happening in, in Syria. This is not true, but they do see eye to eye in terms of lots of things, including the Syrian-Israeli conflict and the Syrian, the Syrian government's conflict or fight against the terrorist groups on the ground. Iran had been supporting military-wise and uh, uh, diplomatic-wise 
everything that the Syrian has, government has been doing on the ground in terms of fighting ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda groups, basically, and uh, Sham and others on the ground. So um, if an attack happens by the Iranians against a terrorist group on the ground in Syria, the Syrians would feel more relaxed because they are getting rid of those terrorist groups and it's their ally bombing them. To what extent there was a coordination, we don't know, but that attack, it would sit better with the Syrians rather than basically the attack that the Iranians carried against the Pakistanis. Same thing goes for Iraq. The Iraqis were surprised by the attack and we saw it by the uh, level of their uh, reaction to what happened. So they were not coordinated with, they were not informed of what was going to happen. And there's a child that died in that attack in Kurdistan that basically um, other nations are using now as, as, a, as a hammer on top of the head of the Iranians. Like you killed a child, you killed a businessman, etc. It doesn't matter if you're trying to attack the Mossad, you jeopardized and killed civilians, including children over there. So that would be basically a black mark against the Iranians. And the Iraqis actually acted upon that. So it would be, it would take some time kind of to patch um, or, or mend the relations between Iraq and um, Iran on the, uh, what do you call it, the, the diplomatic levels. However, there are so many other stitches hidden in this whole uh, patch of land between Iran and uh, Iraq at one point or another. You have to remember that Iran supplies energy for electricity to, to, to uh, basically supplies electricity to Iraq. Iraq owes money to Iran at one point or another. At the same time, um, uh, they do have the Islamic resistance on the ground that's supported uh, in Iraq that's supported by Iran. So there are lots of factors that are happening that would push the Iraqi government just to basically, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, take it to the Arab League, take it to the United Nations, carry it on the diplomatic level, but they will not do any military action against Iran. Pakistan, on the other hand, does not have all these underlying problems. Yes, they do have political issues. Yes, they do have the elections coming over uh, forward. They do have the time delay that basically if you um, skip it, there's a problem with Amran Khan running and being elected at one point or another. People on the ground are fed up with the current uh, corruption and political uh, deviations that are happening in Pakistan. Yet the country as a whole is a unified country and a sovereign country that has a strong army that can retaliate to those attacks. And this is what we saw. But the retaliation was up to the responsibilities of a nuclear state. They did not open a front. They just replied by the, by a similar action. That's that's not an escalation. So they just taught the Iranians a lesson. Don't mistake us for other nations. We can retaliate and we can retaliate bigger than this. However, we're keeping it at, at this level for this time. Now, who's going to cap on this retaliation and try to incite separatist groups or terrorists to expand that front? The only people who would benefit from that are the Americans, the Indians, and the British. And also, you know, people have to remember, uh, Iran's first sort of test salvo of this type of policy was in, I believe, June of 2017, when they launched a medium-range missile to hit ISIS targets in Deir ez-Zor inside Syria. And at the time, that sent absolute shockwaves through Washington. They could not believe that Iran had done that. Um, basically, pole vaulted over Iraq uh, with a medium-range missile and smashed uh, an ISIS uh, base there. So, I mean, that was a real demonstration. And then after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Mahendis, uh, they then hit American bases in Iraq and I believe a target in Erbil as well. No response from the United States from that. So, I mean, if you look at this pattern here, um, Iran's kind of saying to America, I think, 
we have capabilities. They're saying to Israel, we have capabilities. Just be on warning. This is what we can do. Um, and they're hoping, I guess, that that's going to hopefully factor into the decision-making of the Israelis and the Americans. So this is uh, is what they call in America. They'll say this is, they'll say Iran's playing hardball. That's the American uh, expression there, geopolitical hardball. So this is, to me, Layla, a big change in the Middle East. Um, these are very important events that we're witnessing right now, and they will they will alter the playing field going forward. We'll go to break in a second, but your final thoughts on this. Well, I do believe that there's a game of tit for tat uh, between the Americans and the Iranians in the region, especially in the Levant and Iraq as well. And uh, the, the Iranians have always spoken about their arms in the past and they can reach anywhere, etc. However, as of 2017 and up, they started proving to the Americans that they can reach certain distances. And those distances are increasing in time. So by the time that we saw the three attacks over the past 48 hours, that's what actually uh, pushed the Americans to try and um, focus more on what's happening in that region. Because we saw a tactic uh, repositioning of the ships in the Gulf of Aden and um, uh, around the, the Arabian Sea, we've seen uh, different communication between Americans and their allies, be it the UK or other NATO states that have their uh, ships in the Eastern Mediterranean and uh, the Red Sea at one point or another, the, their presence uh, from the Eritrean, Djibouti side and the, the Horn of Africa. So I, I'm looking forward to see to seeing how this is going to play because the main the main curve, like the curveball that was dealt, it had moved shifted the attention not only from Eastern Mediterranean and uh, Yemen, but all the way like to central um, to Central Asia at the moment. However, I don't believe that's where the fight is going to happen. The fight is going to happen either in, in Yemen or basically Eastern Mediterranean. So these are the areas that we want to keep a close eye on. Now we're going to talk about the actual, uh, well, what they call the Southern Front, if you're Lebanese, or the Northern Front, if you're Israeli, uh, South Lebanon right now, how that's shaping up also in relation to Gaza. The IDF seems to be making some concerted moves in that direction. I want to talk to Layla about this and more after the break. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT. Today's news talk. We'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, we've got an interesting new study out. The real atmosphere does not follow the greenhouse gas effect hypothesis of the IPCC. Now, remember, what they're saying is a hypothesis. That means it is not proven. A theory, for instance, is something that is proven and you get to disprove it and then that causes a problem. It's no longer a theory. But a hypothesis is just an idea and needs constant testing. Well, CO2 increased from 310 parts per million to 385 parts per million during the 60 years from 1948 to 2008. Now, this is written by Kenneth Richard, so I want to give him credit because he put this out there. Probably takes guts to do that. But the observations indicate this led to a negative radiative imbalance, which means CO2 may be having a cooling effect opposite of what the IPCC has claimed is happening. Water vapor is the number one greenhouse gas. Water vapor has the correlation to temperature. If you increase water vapor, you will increase the temperature. You will increase it more where it's observed to increase more in the coldest, driest areas. That's the correlation. Where is the water vapor coming from? It would be coming from the oceans. So what do you think is heating the oceans? Now I have my hypothesis and a lot of people don't like it, but it certainly can't be CO2. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. 
On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see how fast you can go under the most extreme conditions, like when it's dark, when the weather's bad, or when the unexpected happens. The higher the speed, the harder the impact. But driving isn't a game or a race. When you're on the road, just 10 miles per hour over the limit can mean the difference between life and death. You're responsible for people's lives and your own. Slow down and save lives. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks, welcome back. We're in the final segment of the first hour of this live broadcast here on Thursday, TNT Today's News Talk. I'm joined on the line by veteran journalist based in the Middle East from Beirut, Lebanon, Leila Hatoum, joining us on the line right now. And we were talking about the uh, incredible situation with Iran's missile strikes on these three targets uh, in the region. What's the reaction going to be from the West? Will there be any, or is this just going to be folded into the geopolitical calculus in the grand chessboard? We'll find out soon enough. But let's go back to Israel and Palestine more directly. Uh, Leila, a lot of people will read events uh, of the last two weeks that Israel is withdrawing uh, its brigades battalions from Gaza to reposition them, to put their resources in the north, uh, to prepare for, it looks like anyway, a possible war against Hezbollah. Uh, what is your reading of the situation and what are the important points that we need to know about? Well, ever since the beginning of this war, I said that the Israelis are trying to create a larger escalation with Hezbollah because that's the major front that if it opens, it will push the Americans to take part in the war and fight instead of the Israelis. The Israelis are now beat up. They're tired. They've been tired since the second week of the war. Remember, almost all of Israel's wars against Arabs and their Arab neighbors at any point did not exceed the three months mark, two months and a half max at best. And uh, this war has basically entered, it's almost finishing its fourth month. Uh, from the second week, Israelis were trying to look for a way out. They knew that they got into quicksand, as basically even their own uh, defense minister, Yuad Gallant, told them. He was trying to get out of Gaza at one point or another, but he was faced by Benny Gantz, who was supported by the Americans. And uh, Benny Gantz refused to basically stop that war. There was a fight in the cabinet between Benny Gantz, Netanyahu, and Yuad Gallant at one point or another. And... Um, the escalation, like literally the tension continues between these three men because each one sees himself as the next prime minister. The only ones who are being uh, supported by the Americans are Benny Gantz and uh, Gadi Aizinkot. Gadi Aizinkot supports Benny Gantz. So basically that tells you one thing, Benny Gantz is, might be the best option, not the best option, but like the only option that the Americans are supporting for the next prime minister in, in Israel. So that person is trying to push to expand the northern Northern Palestine, South Lebanon uh, front. Um, Yav Gannett had opposed that at one point or another. Hezbollah said, we're ready for that. The Israelis never changed, never changed their behavior towards Lebanon so far, like since, since four months until now. That was one of the main conditions that Hezbollah put to expand that front. They dared the Israelis. They said, if the situation in Gaza changes and basically the resistance in Gaza asks for our help, or if the Israelis change change the way they act towards Lebanon, their behavior towards Lebanon, that's when basically we will take it further and basically that front might expand, right? Now the Israelis have ramped up their attacks against southern Lebanese villages. They've literally destroyed more homes. They're attacking, they continue until now, they're attacking Yarun, Hula, Kfarkila, Aita Shab, all the, all the, the, the villages along the blue line that are opposite of the Galilee Panhandle and its settlements. 
Hezbollah has maintained the same level of fighting on the ground that's limited to that area. So within 30 to 35 kilometers of the blue line, between the blue line and the uh, Lebanese territories, that's where the Israelis are bombing. Hezbollah is bombing anywhere between basically zero to eight kilometers, 10 kilometers after the blue line from the northern front, the Palestinian northern front. You have to understand that some of those territories are also occupied Lebanese territories, especially uh, the ones in the Galilee Panhandle. The Hezbollah managed to hit uh, the, we spoke about it earlier, if you remember, like uh, in previous uh, interviews, they hit uh, Israel's eye in the sky, Mount Miron's air defense base. They've hit uh, the Galilee uh, North Command uh, HQ at one point or another. They've hit literally almost every other military post that the Israelis have along the blue line. So the Israelis now are flying blind and they're also limping as well. The settlers have left those settlements. The only thing that's missing is a change in Israeli behavior towards Lebanon in terms of pushing Hezbollah to expand that front. So basically that the Americans will move in. Uh, somebody tried to push in the media the narrative that the Israelis have pounded with 30 rockets the same town uh, 72 hours ago. And, uh, and that means basically that the Israelis are changing their behavior. No, they haven't. They're still hitting the same areas with the same velocity, some more than others, but it's the same areas. So there's no change over there. I do fear what the, what the, what's going to bring a change over there is basically the Israelis expanding the patch of um, uh, territories that it's attacking or at any point carrying another terrorist attack inside, well inside the Lebanese territories. Remember, they have assassinated the Saleh al-Arawri, the second man in command when it comes to Hamas in Beirut. But then again, it was an attack against a Hamas agent, not attack against a Lebanese uh, citizen or basically a Lebanese uh, uh, target. So Hezbollah considered it like it's not a change of uh, a change of uh, behavior towards Lebanon and they retaliate by targeting the Iron Sky, which is basically uh, Mount Meron the air defense uh, base. So far, the Americans tried to take the fight away and the pressure away from uh, Eastern Mediterranean towards Yemen. They targeted Yemen along with the, the British uh, uh, helping them with that. But you have to understand, Hezbollah Secretary General has said one thing. The resistance across this region, be it in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, even Yemen, they're all unified. So if you attack one, the rest will continue to work and coordinate among each other. So it's not going to take off the pressure from the Israelis or the Israeli back when it comes to fighting to liberate Palestine and help the Palestinian resistance liberate their own territories. And when we talk about the Northern Front, uh, or Israel's Northern Front, and uh, the Axis' Southern, semi-Southern Front, where Syria is also part of that line, if you extend out uh, just a little bit further eastward past into the Golan Heights. So, and there's been some activity there recently as well. What do you make of those developments? Is that significant? There was an activity today that is a significant activity today that we are still waiting for in, for the news to filter through from our boots on the ground. There were two major explosions, large explosions that happened in the Golan, the occupied Golan Heights in Syria, Syrian occupied Golan Heights. And we are yet to understand what caused these two explosions. There was no air raid over there. So something happened on the ground that caused these two massive explosions. You could see the pillars from a distance, according to my friend over there. And he actually posted some uh, videos. I'm going to share them uh, in a while on my Twitter account. You're welcome to actually share them also on uh, uh, on TNT. Uh, we are waiting for that news. But at the same time, we saw some action in terms of uh, retaliation using salvo of uh, missiles from the Golan Heights, uh, near the Golan Heights, all the way into the occupied Syrian territories and um, the northern uh, front 
of occupied Palestine, which some basically has rebranded as Israel. Um, I, I don't confess to Israel as a state. You have to understand I'm a Lebanese citizen and a humanist at the end of the day. And basically law graduate. Israel is not a state unless it has fixed borders that basically it, Israel lacks. It doesn't have fixed borders neither with Lebanon nor with, with, uh, with Syria. So for us, it's an attack against occupied Palestinian territories. Um, the Israelis did not retaliate much over there. They were retaliating against Damascus itself and the Damascus suburbs uh, against uh, Iranian targets. That's it. Um, I do believe that the Syrian front is the weakest in terms of the resistance. However, what we are trying to calculate over here uh, as analysts is the possibility of having Palestinian factions, be it in Lebanon or Syria, that are now armed and they're ready to fight, them taking over the Palestinian front to fight from there against the Israeli occupation. It's not the Syrians who are going to fight on the ground. We have seen over 40 years of occupation to the Syrian Golan Heights, and we didn't see one single bullet being fired against the Israeli occupation over there. Syria opted to basically go under international law and file one complaint after the other in terms of the Golan Heights to the United Nations, but they didn't uh, form a resistance on the ground to fight, and their army never fought over there. So what we believe is it's, it's, it's the weakest front at the moment. However, if the Palestinian factions are allowed to use that front to fight, to liberate their own land from there, then basically that's going to turn to another thorn in the side of Israel and in the side of the Americans as well. And it's going to be another miscalculation by the Israelis because they didn't see it coming at one point or another. Now, is the Golan Heights, just to be clear, is is that also... Uh... That that the fighting in that area is that something that um, Hezbollah could expand into in terms of uh, its activity coordinating uh, with their allies uh, to help liberate that region. Is that something that's possible? It's it's very possible. I mean, we've seen it in the past. Hezbollah using the territories um, nearing uh, the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. Remember, you have uh, uh, the the Druze towns that border the Golan Heights at one point or another. Sheba farms as well being used in the past by uh, Lake Nitra, for example. Nitra is a major area where Hezbollah also carried an attack after the Israelis attacked them over there. So Hezbollah, when they are attacked, let's say, in, in Syria, they retaliate in Syria. If they are attacked basically in the Golan Heights by, by the Israelis, they retaliate in the Golan Heights. If they are attacked in Shiva Farms, they retaliate in Shiva Farms. So they retaliate wherever they are being attacked. At, at any point, Hezbollah's fighters know the area very well. They know it like the back of their hand. They have been operating there for, for the longest time. So at any point, I do believe that they can give guidance to any faction that's going to fight from there. They might at any point be the ones supporting the Palestinians fighting from there, or they can carry their own operations from there against the Israeli front. And the other big question is, and I don't know if you have any uh, knowledge or information on this, but I know there's a lot of talk about the the possibility that Hezbollah may have uh, some anti-aircraft capability, which they haven't uh, unveiled yet, as as you and many other strategists will know, Leila. Once you unveil such things, um, then you know it has to be has to be used at the optimum time because you may not be able to use it um, uh, after it's been unveiled. Um, what do you know about this and what kind of a game changer would that be uh, if there were anti-aircraft uh, capabilities? Because this is Israel's major deterrent advantage, isn't it? Having overwhelming power of the skies. Go ahead. Um, do you play poker? No, I'm not That's very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not very good. But, I mean, yeah, but you do know a little bit of the rules, right? 
So if you mm. have a winning hand, do you reveal them from the beginning of the game or do you look for, for taking everybody's money and then revealing that winning hand? And yeah, if you don't exactly. have a winning hand, do you actually reveal it to everyone and lose from the beginning or do you try to bluff and then try to win without having to reveal your hand? And this is what Hezbollah is doing at the moment. In 2006, it's revealed that like during the fighting, we saw that it had possessed new types of technical powers and basically military powers, some kind of missiles that they didn't have in the past. And they had the technology to actually hack into Israeli drones and see where what the Israelis were seeing at one point or another. That was back in 2006. So imagine basically for like 18 years down the line, what kind of weapons do they possess? And remember, Lebanon is not under blockade as much as basically Gaza was under blockade for the past 15 years. So all sorts of weapons can actually filter through to Lebanon via arms dealers, via the black market and via other agents towards and make their way towards Hezbollah's depots. That's one thing. The other thing is that... Um, there were several articles in the U.S. media that were in, like literally pushed forward by the Israelis and the American intelligence uh, departments at one point or another, speaking, that was four months ago, three months ago, that Hezbollah actually possesses um, uh, air defense systems and missiles. Hezbollah never re replied to that. And there's a reason. If they reply and say yes, then basically the Israelis would be, very like, would be more careful in terms of their fights. And when they actually uh, open that front finally and they start sending their... Uh, uh, F-35s and F-16s, they wouldn't uh, be sending them to areas where they think they can be targeted or they will keep at a certain distance or hide away from, from Lebanon. That's one thing. They do not know for sure if Hezbollah has that, but I can tell you one thing. If Hezbollah has it, that would be a game changer. Hezbollah has revealed so far three new tactical weapons that it has that we didn't know it had been in the past. The armed drones, the attack drones, the half a ton uh, what you call it, uh, uh, missiles, Burkan missiles, and at the same time, the winged missiles, the ones that you can't basically go and, uh, and stop them at any point because they don't have a straight flight pattern, they have a zigzag pattern kind of. So those three weapons, Israel didn't know that Hezbollah had. And they fly at a range, seven, eight, ten kilometers. That means beyond that, they can actually reach Rojdan, which has the majority of the facilities for like it's the beating heart of Israel at one point or another with all the infrastructure and uh, the, the defense backslash uh, finance backslash uh, economic uh, centers when it comes to, to Israel. So um, Hezbollah might have longer range missiles. It might have air defense systems. For me personally, I, I was watching what, what the Syrians were doing in the past and I noticed that they, not, they have not until now used the S-400 air defense system that they got from the Russians. Not once, mm. but they've always used the S-300, the older ones. So where did the new ones go? Are they with Hezbollah? Nobody knows. Are the Syrians hiding them so the Israelis wouldn't target them? We don't know. So let the Israelis guess. We might have S-400s. We might have a better defense system that we took from Ukraine. We might have even siphoned some of the arms from Israel. I mean, like, remember, the Israelis were literally catching every now and then an Israeli thief who goes to the front, steals arms from the Israeli military, and then sells it in the black market. They've caught so, so far like two or three of them, right? So you never know if Hezbollah yeah. also took Israeli weapons. So we don't know, but uh, we shouldn't uh, underestimate the poker playing capabilities exactly. of these actors. So Leila Hatoum, thank you very much for joining us on TNT Today's News Talk. Much appreciated. Thank you for your time.
There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. Follow Layla Hatoum on X Twitter. Uh, you can follow her at Layla1H. Uh, we've got her tagged on our feed at 21Wire on Twitter. It's a good source of information. She's also putting out great information on Spaces on X as well. Top of the hour news headlines are coming up. And when we come back, we're going to hit a whole lot more globally. So buckle up and stay right there. <laughs> 